And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I had to get the energy levels up mid-introduction for that one. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I am joined by Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. <gasps> Hello, Taylor. And Graham Ruthven. Hello, Graham. Hello, Taylor. How are you? Still no uh, Ryan Bailey today, I, yeah. I, I noticed. Uh, rumor has it he's now the fifth member of you 2 He's uh, <laughs> he's he's now got a little goatee. He's really into his leather jackets. He gets to live in Vegas. So actually, he's probably quite happy with how, how this has turned out for him. <laughs> Graham, I like how you're presenting not Ryan not being here as like this great observation. Like, okay, there's Taylor. I see him. There's Joe. I see and hear him. Where's that other guy? He's not here. He must be gone today. I like it. It was Graham. such a. It was a shock. It was a shock when I logged Ground into our Zencaster. I think it was as, sho- as shocking as me just going straight to the introductions. No preamble. No anything else. I got the inhale from Joe. That's what I was going for because we've got listener questions to get to, and we're gonna get right to them, gentlemen. Uh, we've got six good ones, maybe seven. We'll see how long we take. The first one comes from uh, Sagar Magiri. Who would be on the Mount Rushmore of beards or facial hair in soccer? It does feel like there aren't enough great beards or mustaches in soccer. Am I mistaken? Sagar, you are not mistaken. There, there's like, there are not enough, I feel like, prominent beards that are there consistently. Just letting it grow out for like a week and then trimming it does not count. So I refuse to count those as is beards. This, uh, is this your message, Taylor, or is this messaging from uh, Big Beard? And, uh, th- <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're going to have a beard, grow a beard is all I'm saying. And mine <laughs> is born of apathy and a fear of how many chins I have underneath it and not wanting to find out. Um, I doubt that's the same for many professional footballers who are usually quite fit. But I've got a few nominations, one of whom comes from Major League Soccer. Joe, do you have any MLS players on your list? So the, the first one that I had on my list, just because this is the only one that came to me naturally on the mustache side, it's Sasha Kleschen. It has to ah, be. It's, it's a classic oh, one. Yeah, it's, good it's not an iconic, like globally recognized look, because I think if you're not one of the global elite players, you're probably never going to make that list regardless. It's a good mustache. I don't know that it really holds up and is quite Mount Rushmore worthy, uh, but it is a, a good look that Sasha Kleschen has made his own over the years. I like that one. I was going Nat Borchers uh, with the gigantic Ooh. beard, the beard that single-handedly won the Portland Timbers MLS Cup. I think we can That's all agree that was one. the thing that did it. Uh, but he does have like the giant, the giant beard that is still still well maintained, and I think maybe has trimmed it since then. I doubt he's walking around with a three foot long beard. But we've got a mustache in MLS. We've got a great big beard in MLS. Uh, Graham, did you have any MLS entrance, or did you want to go elsewhere? No, I didn't. I didn't uh, have any MLS entrance, and I've kind of gone for great beards rather than right. great players with beards. Um, I've never been able to grow a full beard. All I can do is this sort of like patchy puberty beard thing. So I know that I, Taylor could, disdains you for it. Taylor looks down <laughs> upon you. 
As oh, I know result. that. Yeah, <laughs> every single episode we do I mean, together, it requires I can sense me that to vibe. acknowledge Graham's presence. <laughs> sure, then look sure, down sure. Upon him, but yeah. So, so if I could, I would definitely have some sort of like ZZ Top beard down to uh, my chest. I think beards are rare in soccer because I guess in sport it can be a little bit impractical. I was watching. It's weird. This question comes up now because last week I was watching uh, tennis one night and if Ryan was here he'd know who this is but Benoit Pair was playing right I know you're big both of you are big Benoit <gasps> Pair oh, Benoit. fans Benoit yeah. Pair what wow. was it how'd he do <laughs> well he beat the player that I wanted to win so uh, that was not ideal uh, anyway Lucy was in the living room with me and she commented uh, Benoit Pair has this like giant beard she commented it's rare that you see tennis players with a with a big beard like that and she's right and I think just in sport like soccer as well where you have to run 10 kilometers a match uh it's probably not ideal to have that amount of facial hair on on your face, but anyway, there are some guys who have opted for a main. Uh, said I can't mile... run 10k. Is that what I'm hearing from you, Ken? You said I can't run 10k. You want to do this right now? <laughs> I believe that you can run 10k and then be very very sore for the next few days because we saw that in Brooklyn when we when we basically did that playing fives. Anyway, my first entrant is um, Mile Yedinak. I think oh, he yeah. has to be up yep. there on, on the Mount Rushmore of soccer beards. Just an incredible chin bush. Uh, played for Australia, um, Crystal Palace, Aston Villa, I believe. Joe Ledley also had a sensational yep. beard. Uh, someone that I watched a lot in Scottish football. But he actually played alongside Jedinak at Crystal Palace. So maybe it was something about, about that club. Here's a player that I hadn't heard of before, but I found him in a list of great soccer beards. David Moscardelli. So Google him. He's an Italian striker who played for a number of Italian clubs. He has that sort of beard that Roldal would give one of his characters. Like I'm oh, wow. sure there, I'm sure there are entire civilizations that exist well, in in this beard. Well. I feel like Joe's maybe Google Google <laughs> yes. Uh And then finally on my Mount, Rush, Mount Rushmore, you, I'm going to put Rasputin. Al- you had Rasputin on your list for people who aren't able to Google. <laughs> wow, has chosen Rasputin as his player. Go ahead. Yeah, there, there are uh, similarities there. Uh, finally, I'm going to put a player that some people might have heard of, Alison Becker, because uh, I remember he he shaved his beard once. And it looked really, really weird and unsettling. I almost cried. So uh, Alison <laughs> Becker is on Mount Rushmore of beards for me. Joe, you were you were like emphatically nodding along with some of Graham's nominees. I've never heard anybody be like Mila Yednak. Yep, yes, definitely, absolutely, got to go. be on the list. That's Taylor. That's what's special about the Mount Rushmore of facial hair, right? Yeah, no one's ever saying that for Yednak otherwise, and yet here he is in our top list. Um, I, I did a little other research. I had some of those names on my list as well. I went down first, looking at the mustache route. Joe generally, did his own research. Uh, well I, I, well, I, I did do my own research for the purposes of this question. Um, but in reality, I just did Ryan Bailey's research because. Because if you search best mustaches in soccer history, oh. <laughs> a Bleacher Report article by our yes. very own Ryan Bailey is like the first search result. My favorite. So Ryan is not here with us today, but in a much realer sense, he absolutely is. And the best one on Ryan's list, Ronald Spelbos. I don't know if anybody else had Ronald Spelbos on their list. Dutch center back, played in the 70s and 80s. I think had 20 plus caps with the Dutch national team. Played with Ajax towards the end of his career. He has... Uh, a a oh, wild mustache. Wow. It starts so it starts out as a normal mustache. It's thick. It's a good looking mustache, and then it just keeps going like the same <laughs> width, like the width Whoa. of his his upper lip, all the way down, curving like around outside his chin, and then just going back towards like the corners of his jaw. I've never seen. I'm sure Handlebar, this exists baby. elsewhere. Handlebar mustache. It's like right it's there. like a long, complete, extended mustache. I've never seen one that looks quite like this before. I, I was very impressed by Ronald Spelbos. And then the other name that was towards the top of my mustache list was Rivalino. Brazilian attacker was a star on that 1970 World Cup winning Brazil team. 
It's just a, a thick, bushy mustache. Like, easy for me to say, apparently. A thick, bushy mustache. It's not, uh, it's not like anything remarkable in terms of the style, but the flair mixed with, like, the Brazilian national team jersey mixed with, like, the size of the stash, all of those things I, I liked quite a bit. I'm, Joe, I'm shook by Ronald Ronald Spellbos. It's, it's uh, crazy. His, his mustache. You know how, has anyone ever seen, like, a London copper, a London police officer, with, uh, with they have these, like, hard hats and then the, like, the, the strap around their mm-hmm. chin, but often the strap isn't big enough for their chin, so they just end up with the strap across, like, their face <laughs> and their nose. That's what this looks like, but uh, a, a furry version of that. I've never understood that. Like, certainly they can make that hat fit. I've never understood why it has to fit, like, along the lips or whatever it is that they go with. But, yeah, that, that's a good look for Ronald Spelbos. I like that one quite a bit. I feel like a groomed mustache can really say a lot about you really, really quickly. So I avoided that to the extent I could, though I did have Socrates, uh, the, the Brazilian Socrates, on my list. The chin strap, the mustache, you got to get the headband in there, too. I know that's not facial hair, but I'm counting it because he had good looks. Uh, I had Nat Borchers. I had Raul Raul Morelis. Uh, oh, yeah. Especially of Fenerbahce when he went full shaved head and then giant Viking beard with all the tattoos. It was a good look. It was a good look for him. And I think Alexi Lalas uh, probably gets thrown on there, sure. too. It's an iconic look. The big hair, the big red goatee. I don't feel like we have many goatees these days uh, that, that show up uh, often. So I had him on my list, too. Yes, Graham. Can I add a managerial candidate for this Mount Brushmore? Rushmore? Beardmore? What are we calling this? Mount Brushmore. Um, Roberto De Zerbi has some interesting facial hair. He's really committed to the Robert Downey Jr. bit because he looks like Iron Man, De Zerbi. There's a strong parallel there, (laughs) comparison between the two. He's it's he's he's one like uh like the office has that joke of does Stanley have a mustache and like Roberto Deserbi if you told me if he does he have facial hair I'm not sure I would have been able to answer that but he does have the yeah he does have the Iron Man going on doesn't he with the like the spiked up hair as well yeah yeah he's really going for the Robert Downey Jr. look there yeah what you don't see as many beards in management either like I guess Javi Alonso always has that sort of facial hair thing going on but not quite but like. You you never get a big giant beard managing, and I feel like that's a major a major missed opportunity for a lot of managers. Over the last few years, Klopp is maybe the most prominent managerial beard. I would say he's 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 got one. Uh, so I feel like that was a question. I would agree with Klopp. I feel like that was a question for me. We do have a question for Joe later on. Right now, we have a question uh, from Ben Sundstrom that feels very much for Graham. Uh, Graham, <laughs> why do we look at football manager future player ratings for semi serious insight, but completely laugh at FIFA potential ratings? Who's well, we? Because I'm here, quite first good. of all. I'm- go ahead, go ahead. You, Graham may answer, but I take issue with the term we. Graham, now you may continue. <laughs> well, I'm quite good at football manager and I'm terrible at FIFA. So that, that's that's the answer. That's why people take football manager more seriously. No, I, I actually have a bit of insight into how football manager collects uh, data because a couple of my friends are actually researchers for them. So football manager has a sensational network of researchers and, and scouts across the world. So in Scotland... There is a chief researcher, and then there is a researcher assigned for every club in the game. And they don't just provide reports when the new game is coming out, like at the end of the season. They log them after every match throughout the season. So if you think in Scotland, you can manage, I believe, uh, 42 teams in Scotland. There's 42 researchers plus the chief researcher, researcher. That's 43 different researchers just in Scotland. Scotland's a fairly small country. So you extrapolate that out across the world for every club, every league that's in the game. And you would have a hard time finding a club or league that isn't in Football Manager. 
Um, so that's why football manager ratings and simulations are taken semi-seriously because it is, in a sense, a sort of scouting database. As far as I'm aware, the work that goes into FIFA player ratings isn't at that same level. So I read a, a, an interview with the head of uh, data collection for EAFC and he spoke about how they have a, a global team of researchers and how they have to rate 18,000 players. That's the number of players you can uh, you can play with in, in, in EAFC, as it's called now. There are 200,000 players in Football Manager this year. So it's just a much bigger database. They collect more data points as well. So there's only 35 attributes f uh, per player um, in EAFC. Whereas that number is around 300 attributes for uh, for Football Manager. And this is where things get a little bit more cloudy. Um, Miles, Miles Jacobson, who is the the man who, um, he's the CEO of, of, of Football Manager. He's talked about their simulation technology being among the best in not just sports gaming, but all of gaming. And I don't think FIFA has that same level of simulation, so it's just it's just a nerdier game, isn't it? Football Manager than than than, uh, than FIFA, and that's why I love it. Are they the largest employer in the world? How do they have so many people doing this work for them? I mean, a lot. Obviously, the researchers. It's not full time employment, but yeah, in terms of people working for them, it's a it's a huge, huge, huge network of people. It's almost it's almost unbelievable. One of the one of my pals, Douglas, who is um, a researcher for Airdrie. He has talked about how he can see all the research going in throughout the season, and it's just swathes and swathes and swathes of information. So not only um, having people to input that data, but then on the other side, having people to interpret that data and then build the game from that is a mind-boggling task. From from your understanding, Graham, do they have like set criteria? Are they like ticking number of times passed with right foot, number of times passed with left foot? Like how? specific is the data that these people have to keep track of and scout in any given game yes i don't think it's quite as granular as that throughout the season um i think it would be almost like player ratings throughout the season and maybe jotting down so they have to those 300 attributes are things like you know the standard fifa um data points like pace and strength and i, I didn't uh, know there could foot, be right 300 foot. attributes like ever so no it doesn't seem particularly standard to me <laughs> well if you go into like the player info info page yeah. on football manager you can see how many attributes there are per player it's, it's, it's a huge huge number so i imagine all that they're logging is designed to when they do get to the end of the season they are able to as accurate as accurately as they can provide um something for a rating for each of those attributes i'm not entirely clear because i don't do it myself i'm not entirely clear on how they're logging that throughout the season but yeah douglas has told me a little bit about that process i have two more questions for you graham the first is this the type of game because i've played it a little bit many years ago is it the type of game that is initially overwhelming but you will eventually yes. kind of come to grips with it just feels like there's so many 300 attributes for any given player Two hundred thousand players in the game that's that's just the playing side there's the tactics there's the press conferences it just feels like a thing where i guess people do fully get lost for like days at a time yes and i do get lost for days at a time that's why i limit myself on how much football manager uh, i play the the responsibilities tab taylor is your friend okay. so go into the responsibilities tab and you can delegate certain things to like your first team coach or your so if you don't want to take press conferences you can just say i want my uh my assistant manager to do the old Mike Phelan, Sir Alex Ferguson thing um, and take those press conferences. You can hand first team training to, to someone. So that would be my advice for anyone to get into football manager is 
maybe familiarise yourself with that tab and take mm. some of the loads off you and then add cert- if you think right now I'll take first team training like take that back under your control but it can be an overwhelming game they also do yeah. a pretty good job with some of the like wizards um like pop-ups does that you know what i mean by a wizard pop-up like a thing that tells yeah, you how to pops up and is like you shout not sure i thought we were, thought we were talking yeah, about harlem wizards yeah. here Taylor. Like, that's, that's my bad clippy from microsoft <laughs> words just pops just up and <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're pretty good at explaining the game but it can be overwhelming certainly the, the one time i tried to play it i think uh, it was like, hey, your your first team captain has been doing well. Do you want to offer him some praise? And the praise was like, you'll make a good manager someday. You'll make a good coach someday. Or <laughs> you you'll make a good assistant now. someday. And I was like, oh, you'll make a great assistant. I'd love for you to be on my coaching staff. And he responded with, I see myself as more of a manager. I don't like the way you've treated me. I'd like a transfer. And yeah. I was like, I don't. I don't understand what just happened. I don't. I'm not sure this game is for me. Uh, but with all of the attributes, with all the stats, Graham. My second question: Why doesn't Joe Lowry play this game? Joe, you can I'm speak on sure, this in a Joe. moment. But let's talk yeah. about it, shall we? I don't. I don't have a great answer. So I've I've downloaded Football Manager before, and and my actual answer is I'm not much of a video game player to begin with, and I don't have a lot of patience to learn new things. So Taylor, you're you're sort of mentioning what? like both okay, of those I, things seem at, at, at odds with my understanding of Joe Lowry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, we can unpack that shortly if you'd like. But uh, like would. like all of the all He's the detail, therapy. and even you talking about Taylor there, like oh okay, I have to go and respond to like mm. individual characters in my team. Like there's just so much going on in Football Manager. Which to go back to Ben's question, by the way, like I, like I said earlier, I took a little issue with we here. Uh, I don't look at either in terms of like you know giving us semi serious insight into players. Uh, but it seems to me that Football Manager, to Graham's point, is very clearly more detailed. And if I had to look at one to decide, like, okay, I'm at, I'm at a club and I'm about to drop $10 million on a player. First of all, fire me if those are my only two options. But second of all, I would go down the Football Manager route. So uh, there is some truth to what Ben is saying, and I think Graham has outlined it very well. Yeah. Football Manager just seems really, really hard to learn. And probably already too much of my life is about soccer. And maybe it doesn't need to go even further in that direction. That, that that I think is is entirely fair. You do get the stories every now and then about a player who was signed based off of Football Manager or like I think it was Buffetemi Gomez maybe when he moved to Swansea that he he played Football Manager to get to like terms with what his teammates were like and how good Swansea were because he didn't know any of his teammates before he moved there. So you'll have moments like that I feel like every season that do sort of help keep it prominent in that way. I think as long as your research is kind of on a surface level, it can probably be uh, quite useful. I wouldn't. I have never used Football Manager to base uh, an opinion on a player. It's not a big part of my TSS uh, research, but their their hit rate is pretty is pretty high in terms of players who are good in the game who then go on to become like superstars. The most recent one is. Uh, Valentin Barco. I do kind of wonder if Brighton, if someone at Brighton plays football manager, because the number of players that they sign who are football manager wonder kids is is quite a high uh, a high rate. I imagine whoever is leading that front office has a tab open with football manager all the time, and whenever someone walks in, they like close the tab down. Yes, I'm doing emails and important stuff, and then opens the football manager tab again to find their next uh, superstar. I mean, I guess I guess if you're finding legitimate future superstars, it's just work at that point, Graham. So you can you can justify it that way. Uh, thank you uh, for that question, Ben. Thank you as well for the first question. Uh, Sagar, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with more questions in just a second. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Uh, Graham, we were discussing how football manager could be used to maybe find lesser known players on the cheap. Maybe that's something that Schalke uh, could utilize because we do have a question about Schalke from Joshua Bishop. What's going on with Schalke? Why could they lose their professional status? Graham, do you want to start us off or Joe, do you want to start us off? Okay, Joe, on you go. Uh, Looking at Schalke, first of all, their collapse has been absolutely incredible. Going from, well, they they still are one of the absolute biggest clubs in Germany, as Graham has discussed on this show before. Uh, But also, like, they are in the midst of a ridiculous collapse right now. They were relegated from the Bundesliga in 2021 for the first time in quite some time. Then they were back up after finishing up at the top of the second Bundesliga in 2022. Then relegated again. They've sort of been this yo-yo club over the last few years, except for this season. There are 18 teams in the second Bundesliga. As of recording, they're currently in 14th out of 18. The last two teams to set the relegation picture in the second Bundesliga. The last two teams are auto-relegated to the third Bundesliga. The third to last team goes into a playoff, right? So this is a familiar structure to folks that monitor the Bundesliga. Schalke, at this point, are just three points outside of the auto-relegation spot. So that's 17th in the Bundesliga. Forget the playoff. Schalke are a bad set of results for them and and a couple of other teams around the league away from being auto-relegated to the third division. No, the problem is, as I understand it, guys, is that Schalke have so much debt as a club right now. They are saddled with debt. They have not been well run from the front office to the ownership side, the sponsorships, to player sales, player signings, all that stuff. They have mismanaged their club mixed with COVID to the point where they have a lot of debt And clubs in the professional leagues in Germany have to apply for specific licenses to be able to play in that league. So when they're relegated, if that happens, I should say, if Schalke are relegated from the second Bundesliga to the third Bundesliga, they would need a specific license to be able to play professional soccer in the third tier of German football. And they would not likely, this is not confirmed, and a lot of this story has been based off of reporting from Sky Sports in Germany, which seems very reputable, but they didn't phrase it in that initial article where all this comes from, as like, this is 100% going to happen. But it seems likely that if Schalke are relegated, they would not be able to get the necessary license to play in the third Bundesliga, which would mean they would likely have to drop all the way out of the professional pyramid and go to the regional league. I believe they'd be in the regional West League in Germany, which is not a professional league. And that would have a lot of implications for the size of the club, the size of the staff, the players. There would be a ton of change to the point where Schalke would basically be unrecognizable on the field and really off the field in a lot of respects as well. So that's as far as I understand it. And there is still relatively limited actual like first layer reporting on this topic But that, as far as I understand it, is what everyone was running with with some viral social media posts. There have been a handful of stories that sort of link back to the initial report from Sky Sports in Germany. But that, as I understand it, is the current situation with Schalke, who are very much hoping that they do not get relegated. 
Yeah, that, that's a very uh, detailed description, Joe. My notes are slightly shorter. They, they just say it hey, was Matthew Hoppy's fault uh, <laughs> here in my notes. He did it. So th- th- that is one explanation, Joe, but we can't rule out Matthew Hoppy has, has done this to, uh, to Shulk. <laughs> did they get any money for him? Uh, uh, they shouldn't have if they did. Yeah, because if, if they did, then I guess he is part of the problem, to Joe's point. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's basically the surface level explanation, as Joe went through, is letting players leave on freeze, like Joel Matip and uh, Leon Goretzka. Uh, so not getting any transfer fees and then the players that they brought in costing too much. So now they've basically not made any money off sales, but now they're running at, at a deficit because of uh, the the incoming players. They lose the Gazprom part, the sponsorship, which was a huge source of revenue. And then there is the ongoing situation with uh, Clemens Tonis. I, my German is not very good. I apologize. Uh, but he is their longtime not owner, but like benefactor. Uh, he kind of controlled the board. He yeah, was the person the board, who would yeah. infuse them with cash injections. But then there's sort of the idea that he was this benevolent billionaire who's giving them money to help the club stay afloat. Uh, but then there's the counterpoint of at interest and sizable interest at that. And he sort of always made sure that he got his with some of the loans. That meant that he got seats on the board. Uh, and it was pretty contentious, especially when he... Uh, publicly made some racist comments. Uh, there was a COVID outbreak in one of his meat packaging facilities. Meat packaging is also maybe not where you want your money to be coming from. Uh, sorry, overall. sorry, very, very yeah. briefly, Taylor, to uh-huh. interject. Uh, I read in a couple of different places that, uh, that that this guy you're talking about, my German is no better, nor is my pronunciation yeah. of German words any better, uh, is often referred to as the meat baron of Germany, which really yeah. made me want to like him until I read more. Like, meat baron is yeah. just such a cool title to have, and I kind of want it for my life. Um, but I'm afraid that I, I I do not like him. Graham had that title in his adult industry days. Uh, but <laughs> for purposes of this conversation... <laughs> Don't talk about those days, Taylor. <laughs> uh, 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 Clemens Tonys, I think, basically is no longer affiliated with the club. They, I think the, the, the supporters don't want that to be the case or don't want him to be involved. And he has offered, like, I could give you some more money, but I think it comes with significant strings and it's just a relationship that I think they're happy to be rid of. With the caveat that now they're massively in debt, probably can't finance that debt, yeah. and uh, at risk ro- dropping into the amateur level. Though, it would be kind of cool for the regional amateur competitions to get to play uh, in Schalke Stadium. I feel like that would be a slight step down for the Schalke supporters, a big step up for the <laughs> regional Liga uh, opposition. Their debt currently stands at 179 million euros, That's which insane. is more. That's more than the value of the club. Now, I'm not an economist... That seems yeah. like a less than ideal situation yeah. to have debt more than the actual value of the club. And this is a club, as Joe uh, referenced at the top of his answer, one of the biggest clubs in Germany, One of the, in terms of membership, at least one of the biggest clubs in the world. They've got 180,000 members, which in terms of membership places them behind the two big Spanish teams and Bayern Munich Graham, in terms quick, of membership. Graham, on that membership stat, can you explain what that means? Right, That's not just fans of the club. There are obviously more fans of Schalke yeah. around the world than that number. What does that mean Everybody in, in the world, put your hand up if you like Schalke. Right. 188,000. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you, guys. Keep them up. Keep them up. <laughs> they just used a drone to do that. Um, yeah, so as, as I understand it, it's similar to the socios membership model that uh, Barcelona have, where essentially you are paying for some kind of voting right in the, in the running of the, the club. That's essentially it, is, yeah. is that you are a, a member of the club and have some say over the decisions that the, the club makes. Hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a ton of those people with Schalke. Like it is, by a lot of definitions, history, size of, of the membership, fan base, stadium, 
atmosphere. Like it, it is by a lot of definitions, a massive club in Germany. It is, it is honestly mind boggling to me. And this does speak to the incompetence that has been you know placed in high levels of the club for years now. It, it is mind boggling to me that a club of this size can fall like this. And it, it's not unheard of, right? This, this stuff happens. There are powers from past decades all over the world in all sorts of industries that have fallen because of incompetence. And that, that very much does seem like the situation with Schalke and, and German clubs in particular, we'll come on to this a bit later. Like fans in Germany are very particular about what they want. Like they want to control things. They want to have a say in the future of their entities. And I, I don't know that any of that's bad at the same time that does close the door in a lot of respects on some sort of savior coming in and, and helping Schalke in this situation, right? Like they're a massive club, but if ticket prices go up to try and get the club out of debt, that's going to be a problem. If foreign capital comes in, that's a problem. Like because of, of the soccer culture in, in Germany, as far as I understand it, obviously I've never been to Germany. As far as I understand it, that closes a lot of doors on bailing yourself out after the incompetence. Now the, the solution is like when you have Leon Goretzka and Joel Matip and Max Meyer and all these other players. And also maybe don't go out and do a giant sponsorship deal with a Russian gas distribution company in 2006. Like did something happen (laughs) when you, when you uh, something, when you have all all of these assets, like do something better with them. Right. So Mm -hmm. I'm not, this is not absolutely not on the fans or anything along those lines. I just think it's fascinating, especially as an American sports consumer, first and foremost, the cultural differences here. And what the responses are once that incompetence has already occurred and continues to occur, there really aren't a lot of ways out of this that will rescue Schalke immediately. And that incompetence is the problem in my mind because you have extenuating circumstances like the pandemic. When you have this fan base, this rabid fan base that we've talked about who can't attend games, you're not getting the match day revenue. It's a huge loss for a club like Schalke. Uh, and, and so there are those things that do sort of alleviate the concern a little bit. But when they kind of double down on the mistakes, when things don't seem to be getting better, when there are these gaffes with the board members and now there's infighting in the board, I think to your point, Joe, there's just a lack of faith. There's a feeling of, yeah, we could all do this giant fundraiser and try to finance some of the debt. But how do we know the board is going to run the club efficiently and make any sort of change? It just feels like a situation that will continue to worsen because there isn't much in the way of leadership or vision, as I understand it. Now, I am also not a a Schalke member. I am not a German native. So maybe things improve. But given where they are right now in the auto-relegation places, which is not a phrase I've ever heard, but I will now be using all the time, uh, I I think it's a situation where things seem likely to get worse. I don't know, to Joe's point, if that means automatic relegation to the fourth division instead of the third. But I guess we'll be keeping an eye on it because I don't see them getting out of that area of the table anytime soon. I read an, uh, an article that said um, Schalke fans are they're already organising in case they have to create a Phoenix club this summer, mm-hmm. which I think really throws into focus the situation that they are in. That that is a, yeah. a real, a feasible, not an unrealistic possibility that they will have to just like start again as a club for the start of next season. Yeah, because I, I think that is the sadly it seems like that is the most realistic outcome if they indeed get relegated and even then maybe that's what happens next season but if you have all of that debt and you're sliding down the table and you are like playing at amateur level i don't think there's any way you can come back from that it requires yeah restructuring so it's a very sad situation for a club that had manuel neuer and were in the champions league semifinals not that long ago where we're playing knockout round games against man city they had Raul in like playing for them 
Who did? Raul playing for them in the Champions League semi-finals. Oh, that feels right. a lifetime ago. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Uh, so we will hope for better things for Schalke supporters because they deserve it. I have a soft spot in my heart for Schalke, uh, but I don't think I can finance that debt, unfortunately. Great so, tunnel. We'll leave it to Great them. tunnel. Great Maybe tunnel. that's actually the reason they're in debt. That tunnel cost 150 million euros to build. It's a good tunnel. It's a good tunnel. <laughs> and and I don't know if it was worth 150 million, but I like the gamble. <laughs> I like the risk they ran. Uh, let's go to one more Bundesliga-related question. Uh, Joshua Cutlip. Uh, Graham, why have fans been throwing tennis balls and other balls onto the field in Bundesliga games lately? It's just for sport, I assume. They're big tennis fans. <laughs> yeah, they're after uh, after my hearts with that uh, a, a parallel fandom. Yeah, we've seen this several times in German soccer this season. It's not just the Bundesliga either. Um, a second tier match between Hertha and Hamburg was postponed for over 30 minutes due to tennis balls and chocolate coins being thrown onto the pitch at the weekend. Their uh, atmosphere boycotts, as they're called, have also been held across the country, and that basically involves fans being silent for the 12th minute of matches in reference to the, them being the, uh, the 12th man. Basically, the German Football League, the DFL, has held votes on taking investment from the private equity sector. Specifically, the DFL, they want to um, raise up to 1 billion euros of investment in, quote, digitalization, internalization, and global marketing in return for an 8% share of TV rights revenue over the next 20 years. So basically, they want a mandate to go out and find a buyer for 8% of its uh, TV rights revenue in return for investment from the private sector. And this is something that was initially voted down by the, by the clubs, but there was a second vote in December, and that saw 24 clubs out of um, 36 vote in favour, and that was the majority that the DFL needed. So they are now going to market to sell that 8%. Obviously, this in, this sort of investment would go against German football culture, which is very sceptical of outside investment. And of course, you have the 50 plus one rule, which prevents clubs from being bought outright. Um, the Bundesliga, to provide the kind of counter argument to that, the Bundesliga finds itself in a difficult position right now, where if, if, where if you look at its broadcast and commercial revenues, it's falling behind the other European leagues. And I don't just mean the Premier League, I mean La Liga and Serie A as well. So I can understand why the DFL wants this investment because La Liga and Serie A are deep in the world of private equity. Um, La Liga specifically has a, a deal with a, a private equity firm called, I think it's called CVC. Um, so there, there is a risk that not only is the Bundesliga currently behind those leagues, that gulf could grow even bigger. I can, however, understand why German fans are concerned and why this feels like the antithesis of everything that they, they, they stand for. So actually, I can kind of see arguments on both sides, but that is why these protests have been happening. Uh, for me, I, I think reading about the Monday night aspect of this was also really interesting, that historically Bundesliga games are played. I think occasionally you get Friday games. That might be a more recent develop, but Saturday, Sunday primarily. And a lot of this, as I've seen, has to do with that TV schedule. They want to compete with La Liga. They want to keep, compete with the Premier League. So they've added Monday night games, uh, which you would think would be appealing. But I think for German supporters who want to travel, who want to be able to go to games that might be 500 miles away, but then get back in time for work the next day, that is less feasible. And, and, it, and I think it's, it's, that's a specific example where I think there is a sentiment amongst the fan base that the, the, uh, the DFL is prioritizing that income and the global exposure at the expense of the local fan base and the local fandom. And so there, you, you're seeing protests 
in a way that are meant to disrupt proceedings, bring attention to it, because if you're stopping a game twice in the first half, it has to be commented upon. It's going to be high profile. You're going to have coverage of it. And I think it's a smart way to go about getting eyes on like 8% of a TV rights deal and changing kickoff times is not necessarily the sexiest issue, but when you've got golden coins and tennis balls, suddenly ESPN is going to write an article about it and we're going to talk about it on this show. And I love the golden coins aspect of all this as well. Like, it, that's a perfect thing to throw onto the field when you're talking about these financial issues. Like, it, it's it's absolutely genius yeah. in this case. I love the imagery that's presented there. Also delicious. I'm also, I guess I'm just really committed to outing myself as like a prisoner of uh, money-hungry leagues, as, as a fan of money-hungry leagues in the United States. All this is still a little wild to me. Like, especially the Monday night issue, which I read about here, Taylor, as well. And that's that, that's maybe not exactly the, the cause of Joshua's question here, but has prompted protests like this absolutely in the past. Like, the NFL is, is changing schedules mid-season these days. Like, like they're, right. they're changing up primetime games on Sunday nights and Monday nights, messing with, like, tickets and fans' travels. Like, they, they don't care. Like, they don't care about the fan. And that doesn't fly in Germany. And there are benefits to that, and there are costs to that in terms of maybe your league generating a higher profile. That stuff is just still so hard for me to fit in my American sports fan brain, but it is absolutely the explanation here. I'm fascinated about the the Bundesliga's TV stuff as well, Graham, because that's not something that I researched for this question. Obviously, the Premier League is you know far and away in terms of the most marketable soccer product on the planet right now, and, and they bring in the most revenue from a TV sponsorship perspective. It shocks me that the Bundesliga has fallen behind in that in that uh, sort of ranking because I think about the Bundesliga as being a very compelling TV product and not because of any stereotypes around, oh, you know, the soccer in the Bundesliga is more transitional or it's more direct. I don't I, I'm not sure if I buy any of that stuff. But what I do buy is that the atmospheres of these games seem to be awesome. Like we just spent time talking about Schalke. Watching Schalke and, and Borussia Dortmund with Christian Pulisic and Weston McKinney facing off against each other when they were both in the Bundesliga was like an incredible TV experience as a sports fan. Getting shots of the crowd, like hearing the atmosphere, it really surprises me that that's not something the Bundesliga has been able to capitalize on at a greater level. Joe, to to emphasize that, the the Frankfurt game that I went to when they beat Bayern which yeah. is obviously a pretty big moment, is the single loudest thing I've ever experienced. Totally. I don't understand how like Besiktasha Stadium was t- too much for Timo Werner. Bundesliga stadiums are the loudest thing. I like. I had a person sitting right next to me. It's like NASCAR. I've never been to a NASCAR race, but it's my understanding that NASCAR, you can't hear anything either. Uh, and the person sitting next to me, I had to fully scream at for them to be able to hear me back and forth. The atmosphere is just insane at those games. And I think you need that to continue to generate interest but like like i think also just because if you're functioning as a domestic league where you're prioritizing the domestic fan base as i think they should be then you want to accommodate those groups and to your point joe i don't think that's what the nfl is i think they're trying to be a global brand they're trying to put the best game they can in front of the most eyes on television so that everybody glues in or is glued in and is interested and then talking about it the next day i'm not sure that is the best uh like direction for the Bundesliga to go because I think it loses some of what makes the Bundesliga special, in my opinion. I've got a chart here in front of me that shows the value of the international media rights of the big five uh, football leagues in 2022. So I believe this is for a single year. The The Premier League is uh, just under 1.5 billion euros. La Liga is 710 million euros. Serie A 
is 650 million euros. The Bundesliga, 180 million euros. So that is quite a large drop-off. And and it kind of squares up with, if we're thinking of the American market, each of, I mean, I don't really know, is it BN for La Liga at the the moment? ESPN. uh, ESPN. ESPN, of course, actually, yeah. They they changed the ESPN. Premier League has NBC, CBS go big on Serie A, ESPN, um, do they prioritize the league over the Bundesliga? I'm not entirely sure what the it's US all situation on e- is. It's the- all on ESPN Plus, I feel like. I I mean, that said, I don't watch a ton of like regular It doesn't ESPN. seem like one is really in the driver's yeah. seat over the other, although I admit I spend as little time on ESPN Plus as possible. Yeah. I do wonder if the La Liga international rights, um, that, that money, that 710 million euros might be related to an Asian contract because I know La Liga has shifted like classicos to three o'clock on a, on a Saturday to try and capitalize on that market. And the Bundesliga is just not able to do those sort of things for reasons we've just explained. So it feels like the Bundesliga is looking at this chart and thinking we need to catch up with the other leagues or we're going to get further left behind. And I think on top of that, I may be wrong, but at least as of a couple of years ago, there was also more favorable revenue sharing for all of the leagues, all of the divisions in Germany, whereas you don't, have that in, say, England, where the Premier League clubs are going to keep the majority of that TV revenue, which is why they have a majority of the global soccer money to spend. Uh, so I think it, it really does just come down to, do you want to be a globally competitive league and try to keep pace with the Premier League at the expense of probably the financial stability of a lot of your second and third division clubs? Or do you want to kind of continue the tradition and to continue the idea of being a domestic league for your domestic fan base and that you get these crazy well-attended games with these crazy well-supported clubs but at the same time you risk being left behind and becoming sort of not a footballing backwater but just less of a priority for those tv deals and for fan bases around the world and i think the dfl is probably trying to shift in the direction of being more of an an entity more of a global sort of uh, brand. Uh, and so I think it's it's an interesting crossroads for German football, and I don't know where they will go. Uh, but it's odd for me to say, I hope they stay local as an American who's been to Germany twice. Uh, I'm not sure if that <laughs> if that really uh, allows me to be an expert. Uh, gentlemen, anything else uh, on this topic before we take one more break? No, just uh, if, right. if German fans want to throw some chocolate coins my way, I, I'm always oh, down yeah. for chocolate coin. Yeah. I love chocolate coins. It's one of the best delivery vehicles of chocolate is the coin shape. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, And when Santa brings them, it's especially a a good time. My my daughter was very, very excited to get all the many chocolate coins she got because it's Santa bringing (laughs) coins, which are also chocolate. It makes her sort of frustrated as to why quarters don't taste more delicious. And then that's a whole different conversation we have to have. Uh, (laughs) One more break. Back soon with two more questions. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Before we took a break, Joe, I'm very glad that you are on the quarters should taste better bandwagon. Uh, It's good to have you aboard, my friend. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it's it's great to be here, Taylor. First of all, it's good to find allies in this way. Uh, my my strongest coin take is that the penny is stupid and we should get rid of it. So we might as well turn that one into chocolate as well. Yep. I uh, I don't know why our currency just doesn't taste better. Yeah, I mean, Li- Lincoln's already stupid. on the five. Does he need two <laughs> two pieces of currency? I don't know. I think I think share, we can get rid of the share penny. some of that, man. Come on. <laughs> Graham loves cash, so I know Graham wants to keep as much cash and change around as possible. <laughs> Listeners, Graham gets so annoyed that we still use cash in the United States. Sorry we don't live in the future, Graham. Yes, sorry we're not beholden to our AI Just overlords like you are in me. <laughs> annoys me so much that you guys invented Apple Pay and yet don't actually know how to use it. Get with the times. <laughs> I know how to use it. I just prefer not to, to specifically irritate Graham. Next question from Brian Avery. Which will happen first, a goalkeeper winning the Ballon d'Or or an Asian nation winning the oh, World Cup? So a goalkeeper good. winning the Ballon d'Or? We all agree? Okay, let's keep moving. <sighs> oh, this is such yeah, a good I, question. <laughs> I love it so much. It, so, it really is. I don't think a goalkeeper will ever win the Ballon d'Or again. Uh, certainly not since they created the Yashin Trophy a few, really? few years ago. Really? Yeah named, na- yeah, named after the only goalkeeper to have ever won the Ballon d'Or. He won it back in uh, Lev Yashin, that is 1963. Since then, think of all the great goalkeepers mm-hmm. there have been. Buffon, Casillas, uh, Kahn, Neuer, Howard. Schmeichel, Matt Turner. Uh, none of them. <laughs> Have won Friedel, a Ballon d'Or. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not um, I, I just think <laughs> I just don't think the, the way that we evaluate players would yep. ever make it possible for a goalkeeper to win it in the 21st century. We're all obsessed with attackers when it comes to these things, and I count myself I'm, I'm among that. We're obsessed with outfield players and attackers, and I just feel like in the social media age with viral goal clips and skills clips I, I just think it'll always be an outfield player because they they will always be the players that have the hype around them and as we know the Ballon d'Or is pretty much meaningless it's largely about hype I just I just don't think a goalkeeper will ever win it in my lifetime again see I agree with all of your arguments until your conclusion because I would go the other way I think in the social media age we are more likely than ever to get a like sort of growing traction of like, hey man, this goalkeeper was really good this year. This goalkeeper should win the award. And I could see if you're trying to make the Ballon d'Or relevant and reflective of the trends, which I do think they're trying to do, uh, that could be more likely. I also think a lot of this is viewed within the context of Messi and Ronaldo won, I believe, 108 straight Ballon d'Ors. So like (laughs) when you have that for context, it does feel like, well, no, it's just always going to be one of those two. But more recently, we've seen a bit of uh, flexibility in who is winning it, to Graham's point, still attackers, still playmakers, still goal scorers. But I do think if there were a goalkeeper who, I don't know, combined like the uh, Jorge Campos' ability to take free kicks and score with being Manuel okay, Neuer may- as the okay, crazy maybe good in out- that outfield instance, player. Because yeah. I feel like there was a, goal- a moment when maybe Manuel Neuer was... Yeah close to the conversation so we've we've had uh we've had movements before right those sort of social media movements we've had it around wesley schneider had it in 2010 when he had a great year and even though he wasn't the best player in the world there was a movement keepers. behind him like, what <laughs> when did that happen you don't remember <laughs> gotcha, wesley gotcha, schneider's gotcha. stint in goal i mean come on Taylor. <laughs> no i'm i'm talking about you, you yeah, Taylor, yeah, you were talking yeah. about like social media movements mm-hmm. that push a player up the voting yeah, yeah. we had it with Jorginho a couple years ago which was absolutely wild but people thought he should win a ballon d'or and you're right i think i vaguely remember it happening at some point with with manuel neuer but even in those instances, they were nowhere near yeah. getting close to a Ballon d'Or because the Ballon d'Or is voted for by managers and players who maybe aren't quite as uh, susceptible to that social media hype as we are as like outside observers. Mm-hmm. I, I just I just don't ever 
see it happening. But I look forward to uh, a goalkeeper winning the Ballon d'Or next year just to prove me wrong. Who is like the most high-profile standout goalkeeper in the world right now? That is, that is also a thing that I think pulls me back a little bit from this idea because like maybe it's Adairson if Brazil were to do something, but probably still it, is right. Adairson yeah, or Allison, I, think, I would imagine, are, Adair, are pretty Ed, close Ederson to each other. or um, pre-injury Courtois. I yeah. think might have been up there as well. So if Belgium won the World Cup and Real Madrid won the Champions League. It's so all Thibaut Courtois in shootout fashion. If they won both in shootouts, <laughs> then maybe. But we're spending a lot of time on the goalkeeper. Joe, are you about to take us to an Asian nation winning potentially? No, because I okay. also have goalkeeper <laughs> winning the Ballon d'Or. Cool. Like Taylor, you, you and I are aligned on this. The yeah. only world in which this happens, Graham is correct. This is incredibly unlikely to happen, as is an Asian nation winning the World Cup in our lifetimes and in mm-hmm. our children's lifetimes, et cetera, et cetera. Like the only way I can imagine a goalkeeper winning the Ballon d'Or is not with any current professional goalkeeper that I've heard of, at the very least. Maybe this isn't a football manager database out there somewhere. But it's like an Erling Holland-esque goalkeeper prospect popping up and doing things that just no one has ever done before. Like, it has to be someone who almost reinvents mm-hmm. the position that could be with their Rodwell build. Williams, just saving every <laughs> yes. penalty that he faces. Yes, Graham, I love that. Four <laughs> out of five every time. Can you imagine? That'd be crazy. Anyway, like, it has to be someone who's unique, either with their build or with their, yeah. their playing style, who, like, maybe has the, the longest... I, I don't know what it's going to be, right? But the longest uh, To arms. me... Yeah, yeah I don't know what... It maybe he's, like, like, one of those car uh, car wash things that, you know, Graham probably doesn't have those in Scotland. <laughs> Wacky waiting inflatable arm flailing too, yeah. man. Yeah, I'm with um, you. Maybe that's what we're looking at here. I, I don't know, and that's incredibly unlikely. That just still seems more likely yep. to me than an Asian nation winning the World Cup. Is it impossible? Absolutely not. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. Japan crashed out of the Asian Cup. They're still the, the best team in my mind over in Asia. South Korea are a good team. Obviously, challenges there with their, their manager. Maybe more on that later this week. Like There is talent in Asia. I'm not denying that. But the stranglehold that Europe and the top of South America have on the highest levels of this game at the international level is incredible to me. And given how narrative-y the Ballon d'Or is, I think if you can catch, and Graham, you kind of got to this and Taylor, we talked about this already. If you can catch fire on social media with this goalkeeper that we've never seen anyone play like before, I I just have an easier time seeing that happening than I do, uh, you know, Japan winning the World Cup. That's quite a high bar to set, though, Joe. Like, a player who we've never seen play like this before in the game. But they exist. They they exist, right? In the last 20 years... We've gotten Lionel Messi, who is the greatest soccer player of all time. We've gotten Erling Holland, who might well be the greatest striker this world has ever seen and will do things that we have never seen and already has. Like, these people exist. We get yeah. one of them every decade. I don't think we get a new World Cup winner every decade. And we certainly, well, okay, that's probably not true. We definitely don't get an Asian team winning the World Cup nearly that often. I don't know. It just, it just, if I have to pick the lesser yeah. of two evils here or the, the least likely thing, I'm going down the, the Asian nation yeah. winning a World Cup I, thing. I don't totally discount Joa completely, uh, you know, a freak of a goalkeeper emerging. I, I just, I just don't trust the wider soccer sphere or whatever recognizing that player as the best player in the world while you have Erling Haaland and while you have your Messi's there will be continue to be these outfield yep, players it's true that and I don't want to offend any goalkeepers out here but they're are already offended don't more... worry it's all good no problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're a different breed famously as, as people say um they those outfield players are just inherently more exciting to fans than like the most astonishing goalkeeper we've we've ever seen so i I, think, I, I, I just can't see it i just can't ever see it I, I think where where it gets tricky for me 
it, there's like if you look at the variety of factors that go towards giving a player a ton of credit for their standout achievement over the course of a year. If a player is winning the Ballon d'Or for their club performances, I struggle to think of a club that is so reliant on their goalkeeper to win games that it's going to stand out as being the goalkeeper was the contributor. A goalkeeper can have very good performances in a game that they win 1-0, but Man City are not pointing to Adairson as the reason why they why they win so many games. And I think that that starts right there is that any team that is successful, they're going to look to Graham's point to the attackers, to the goal scorers when they win most games three nil. Yes, that one nil yeah. win was critical from the goalkeeper, but it's not maybe the most critical thing on top of that. It is a position much like place kicker, as the Buffalo Bills will tell you, where you can have a very, very good season. The minute you have a howler, that is the thing that stands out. That is the moment of, wow, you couldn't perform in that moment. You dropped the ball and they scored and now we're out of the title race. The gaffes are also going to stand out. And I think those two things, like it makes it really hard to find a scenario in which you have a goalkeeper who is so critical to like overall achievement at club or national team level without them being some exceptional, like coming off their line, making plays, playing as a center back on occasion, scoring free kick goals. Like to Joe's point, I think it does require something to elevate above just being a very good goalkeeper. Yeah. Alison Becker, by all accounts, is having one of the best seasons of his career for Liverpool this season. Mm. We've spoken about him twice on the show this season. <laughs> yep, exactly. And both times yeah. it was for gaffes yep. it's, and it's for a, blunders. It's a phenomenal point. Like, I think we all 95% agree with the other person's point. It's the 5% yeah. that just sways us in the other direction. I just straight up can't imagine a world where thing. we see an, an Asian team winning a yep. World Cup in, in any time soon in the current format. It's not impossible uh, and maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe maybe the the chaos of knockout tournament soccer does you know sort of turn the tide. We saw Morocco get one game. Obviously, not an Asian nation. I know that. Thank you very much. Uh, you can send the emails of complaints to Taylor at totalsoccershow.com. <laughs> like we've seen a nation from a a a continent that doesn't typically produce World Cup winners go out and make a run to the semi. So it is possible to make a deep run and to be 180 minutes away from winning a World Cup. It's just really, really, really hard. Both of these things are probably never going to happen. Uh, yeah, Graham and I are doing a one-on-one episode on our favorite soccer conspiracies, like like Korea making it to the semifinal. You could say you could point to as an example of like, look, there's a there's an Asian team that went almost the distance. That one is shrouded in conspiracy and allegations of uh, match fixing and bad officiating and many other things. Removing that from the equation, that still feels like an outlier and caught fire, home nation, right place, right time. You can get that, but I don't see a program that is consistently building to the point where they are a consistent World Cup competitor that is making the knockout round, that is making it further than the quarterfinals. Japan would probably be the one that I would have pointed to, but they did not fare particularly well in the Asian Cup this time round. They always feel like they're sort of very good, but not able to elevate above to that next level. So I I think that's the case for a lot of Asian teams. I feel like we had this conversation about African uh, national teams fairly recently as well, and I would say the same goes there. Uh, CONCACAF is, is, is probably the one that I would say maybe, but even there, that's mostly my American bias, uh, showing. So are we basically saying that we don't see a non-European, non-South American team winning the World Cup in the next 40 years or so? I think it'll happen in the next 40 years. I think it'll happen 
once for some arbitrary reason, <laughs> for no reason other than hunch. Uh, I agree with Joe. I think USA. both of these things are unlikely. Well, maybe. Who knows? You know, maybe you Here guys. Gio Reyna becomes your guy's Messi. Oh, I'll get the horn. Should I get the horn? That's a weird get the horn. career path. Okay, get the horn. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, yeah. I've gone for the Asian team winning the World Cup first just because my bar is set solo with the goalkeeper lifting a Ballon d'Or as it will never happen. Yeah. Uh, so I, I agree with Joe. It's unlikely to happen. But I look at the way... I know Japan have just had a bad Asian Cup, but they did well at the World Cup. They they finished top of a group in, that, that um, included Spain. There's the... The klaxon, the horn, it's again. It's Gio Reyna. <laughs> <laughs> Hoisting aloft the World Cup. There we go. All right. <laughs> yeah, point, Grim. On the whole point taken, there has not been a non-South American or European World Cup winner in the last hundred years. I would anticipate yeah. that that same trend continues for the next hundred years, which gives me a hundred years to go out there and hype up a goalkeeper to win the Ballon d'Or. Let's make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> I love that question. Thank you, Brian so Avery, good. for that one. Final question comes from Ian Brady. Uh, it seems like you all agree 24 teams is bad for tournaments. I would agree. Would you support four groups of six with the top two advancing? So knockout is eight teams only. I think this adds a lot of games uh, total played, but only one more for the winner. There could be crazy permutations for second place, but that would make the last games assumingly played simultaneously quite fun. Uh, I should also add, uh, before we get into the meat of this question, I think I alluded to the idea in Weekend Review that we were still getting three-team groups at the 2026 World Cup. That is obviously not the case. We're getting four-team groups. Uh, but I, I wanted to acknowledge that one there just in case there was any confusion. So we're still getting four-team groups just in that World Cup. We've expanded enough that I guess the knockout round makes sense. But I have talked previously about how I do not love the best third-place teams getting to go to the next round. I feel like that creates chaos and confusion, even if it creates drama and a potential champion if Ivory Coast keep doing things. Uh, but I don't love the the 24-team format with the way they do advancing. So I am slightly in favor of this one. Joe, how are you feeling about uh, four groups of six? So I think this does accomplish something. And I think it gives us higher quality <laughs> soccer for longer, Like, which is not an insignificant part of having... <laughs> A, a soccer tournament, right? We think about as the knockout rounds go on, you end up with teams playing for extra time and playing for penalties, and it, it does lend to you know worse games. Like like the games just straight up aren't as enjoyable, but they're also lacking in stakes. Like group stage games just straight up matter less than knockout round games. So on the whole, I, I don't yeah. love this suggestion for me, and I think it has benefits, but I think the the cons outweigh the pros. The knockout part of tournaments are just the most fun part. Even if the quality of the game isn't as good, the stakes are higher and that plays a huge role in everyone's enjoyment of those games. So reducing the number of knockout games in favor of lower stakes group stage games, I think is just a difficult sell to be honest, but it's not even like the real root of the problem is Ian's format or the current format that we see at AFCON. It's just not a good number of teams for a tournament. Like, it's just a really awkward number. You don't end up with an even knockout pairing that you can get to easily, right? You don't get from 24 teams to 16 teams or eight teams easily. You always have to do something roundabout or, or keep the bar too low or too high to get down to, you know, <coughs> multiple of, of two that you can sort of do a tournament off of. Like, it, it's just really, really hard to do that. 24 teams is just not a good number of teams for a tournament. 16 or 32 is absolutely ideal in my mind. And unfortunately, it feels like we've sort of gone past that until we get 
you know, UEFA dropping 32 team euros. And I know Michael Cox had a piece about that in The Athletic. I, I don't know if I, I like that more or less from a format perspective. I like it more. I don't know that we need more teams at these tournaments either, but it is really, really difficult to make a compelling, like perfect format for a 24 team tournament. Graham, how say you? I would not back this format because I would quite like to see Scotland play a knockout match at a major tournament at some point in my lifetime. And this pretty much means that will never happen if there's only eight teams going through to the knockout rounds. Uh, I agree with a lot of what Joe said uh, about this format. If I'm looking beyond my own selfish Scotland uh, fandom, I guess I would be interested in how this, um, this would work. One thing I do quite like about the 24 team format with some third place teams going through is that, and I get what Joe's saying, that there are quite a lot of games that are low quality because it feels like teams can kick the can to the end of the group to win a game, essentially. But I do enjoy those last group stage uh, games where there aren't really any dead rubbers because you can go through with just one win like Ivory Coast did at, uh, at this AFCON. So even a team that loses its first two matches has something riding on that final group game. And in a six-team group, you'd surely have a good number of teams cut adrift after the second and third games and I don't love that idea where you just have teams with nothing to play for for like half of the group stage um so I don't love uh, the 24 team format I'm not sure this is any uh better and I also read that Michael Cox piece Joe I say just go to 32 at least for the Euros I think UEFA can sustain 32 teams I don't know for other continents continents like a 32 team uh, gold cup might be a bit of a, a, a hardest stretch. of hard passes. Hardest <laughs> but for the Euros, passes. like you, you, you will never contract a tournament, right? Once you've expanded it, you will never get the votes to reduce the number of teams. You're always going to have to expand. And I think at this point, 32 is better than 24 for the Euros. What about 24? But you actually have like 16 going to the group stages and you have play in games. So you get sort of knockout games immediately to build some excitement. Then you go into a group More stage down. for the teams that survived. Yeah, I, I like that better. Why yeah. did they not do that? Just because it's not really a soccer They're thing. They're not as smart as Taylor. Taylor, that, like, that, that's honestly <laughs> the best one I've heard. I was thinking about some sort of, you know, pre tournament tournament, but just having it still be at the tournament. And giving teams a little bit of a buy in the opening round works. It's still awkward, right? Like, it's still just do 16 or 32 for the most part. Yeah. But if you're really set on doing 24, I, I think that makes for a much more compelling format. I, I kind of wonder if we might see this because there's precedent for this. I this think, is what the Europa League does now. It has a play-in round where some teams get a buy to the last 16. So that's another UEFA competition. I kind of wonder if we might see this in the Euros. I think we're getting something close to it for 2026, where like a few of the final spots are like the the third best team from this confederation and mm. the second best team from this confederation go into a playoff that then meets the corresponding rankings from a different like uh, playoff game. So I think we might get that in 2026, but it's still not quite to the level that we're talking about. I think ultimately it comes down to they just want I think you all have talked about this with playoffs. They want more teams in the knockout rounds. And so having your four best third place teams get to go through means you have more knockout games and means you can still get teams that didn't reach their potential, so to speak, getting into the knockout rounds. And then we see what happens. So if you want to go that route, I say just, yeah, go 32 and then just make it all single elimination and you get the tournament done rapid fire. I suspect that would not be popular because you'd have the tournament over in like a week and a half or two weeks or something like that. And Sounds nobody good wants to me. that either. <laughs> Graham, you want that? 
<laughs> well, actually, well, okay. have, I'll have that over the 104 game yeah. month long marathon that we're going to have in 2026. There is that. Well, actually, wow, that, sorry that you did hate make me soccer, wonder. Graham. Wow. Like, tur- if you have. There's a line, Joe. If you have a tournament that we're all focused on watching, so say the Euros, World Cup, whatever, that are happening in the summer, what is the ideal number of games per day for you all? Is it three? Is it two? Mm. I, ideal is probably two. If, two feels like I can focus mm. on those matches entirely. Three feels... What did we have with the Qatar World Cup? Is it four? It was four for the most four part and too a, much. a little bit of three. Yeah, so... It, Taylor, honestly, I can't answer that question because I, it's been so long since I've watched soccer consistently mm-hmm. as a fan, and ama- I don't. I, I mean, it's been That's years since I watched yeah. a major mm-hmm. tournament as a fan. I think as a fan, like more soccer is awesome. Yeah. Like having four games a day during a summer. I'm imagining like being a kid off of school for the summer, and I and you just binging. That sounds like the best summer ever. But I mean, for us, yeah, stupid two children. Is, Getting yeah, I'm going to do a joy stuff. stuff. No, it's yeah. not allowed. Uh, like, but get for what job, we do, six year old. All right, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> There's a mine with your. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, right? I, I would say two games a day for this, but I mean, three or four, I think, is is like fine as a viewer. Three is probably about right. That Shaka wall isn't going to build itself, is all I'm saying. No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> get those kids in the mines is not. A thing I expected to uh, to be espousing at the end of the show, but we've gone, I think, just over an hour, and that's when things get weird. On that note, maybe we should bring this one to a close. We have one more question that we'll get to in the Patreon that involves Joe and future technology. Uh, Joe Lowry, I look forward to answering that one with you in just a moment. But for now, thank you very much for all of your answers today. Thank you, Taylor, and a wonderful job, as always, hosting. Thank you, my friend. Uh, Graham Ruffin, thank you. Uh, you don't have to get in the mind today. Oh, thanks. Not today, just tomorrow and the days well, after. Well, Thursday is your mind day. day. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. It's all, it's, you always have Probably Thursdays. Uh, <laughs> happy pre-mind day to you all. We'll talk to you tomorrow. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.